Welcome to the Grow With It podcast, a podcast about operationalizing your data to grow faster. My name is Michael Sharkey, co-founder and CEO of Auto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jesus Requina, VP of Growth at Figma. Our goal is that you leave each episode with practical and actionable insights from leading experts in data and growth. Let's get into this week's episode. Ben, it's been a while. You're not in Melbourne, right? Not in Melbourne. All the Mike, um, Ben and I have really a lot of common common things. Melbourne, Copenhagen, San Francisco. It sounds like you guys got one of those pictures people have in their houses of all the fancy cities in the world, and you're like, I'm going to live in, I'm just going to go down this checklist of cities. It sounds like all the fancy cities. Yeah. But while you were working in Hawthorne at the agency, I think I was serving you coffee at the local cafe. We had we didn't know of each other then, but we, we learned that Jesus was a, a regular at the cafe I was working at at that time. Wow. So that's the crazy story. And then we went to Copenhagen and we work at the same company, Falcon.io. To be fair though, coffee in Melbourne is very like data-driven and stuff. So this all ties in really nicely. <laughs> very much so. Yeah. But yeah, Falcon, formerly known as Falcon. I don't know what they go by now, but I think it's seasonal brand watch. But brand watch, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've uh, gone through a lot. And then you went to San Francisco. And I followed you. I didn't follow you, but I came after you, right? Yeah, he texted me once like, hey, man, I'm moving to San Francisco. And I was like, what? I was like, well, I'm here. So we should catch up. And we played tennis a couple of times. You times. tried to hire me a couple of times. Tried to hire Ben a couple of times. That's true. It didn't work out. We can and here we are. I, I, I didn't talk to anybody else about any other jobs. Don't worry. That's true. And here we are recording a podcast. So you have so many great experiences with data, Ben. Um, one of the things, Mike, that Ben and I work intensively about is about providing data to sales. And that, I think that started back in Falcon. So I recall some um, stories, Ben, when we were at Falcon doing, collecting accurate data for sales to create leads. Ben actually created a really solid engine at Falcon with really accurate lead and accounts for sales, which I think now years back, um, it was pretty unheard of. So I haven't found many companies that have done it so well. Ben, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that one to get to break the ice. Yeah, I mean, it It was like third-party intent data-ish before it became very, very trendy, I guess. I would say it was before a lot of those companies. So that was quite unique and it worked very well for us. And I think a couple of our competitors were doing it, but only a few. But if you think about the way I reflect on it is sales qualification criteria, classic one, band, budget, authority, need, and timing. And they're really hard to do from an outbound perspective. If the company doesn't know about you, you just have their information. To try to get that information is, is pretty pretty challenging. There's some things you can do with a lot of information these days, but we had a pretty unique thing where we were just hounding the, the Facebook API because if we thought about our, our sort of TAM, there was anybody at that time who needed a social media marketing tool. That's what Falcon did. And available from the Facebook API was information around were they posting, were they using a tool, and when were they posting, which was pretty good because for us, that was like, pretty clear need that we could qualify, like they needed a tool because we could pick up that they were using a tool already. And from that standpoint, like we knew they had budget depending on the tool they were using, which was pretty amazing. Authority came a little bit later, but I think the really like the really clever bit in all of this was timing. And that's a little bit more detailed of really activating the data pretty, pretty particularly where if you 
you pulled everything they were posting on Facebook or Instagram at the time over a time series, you could actually see the tool use over time. And if you were clever with how you inferred that timing, you could, you could kind of infer a contract start date with a vendor. If they weren't using that tool for 10 months and then started using a tool consecutively for nine months, you're pretty sure they're in a 12-month contract with them. So we just had this engine behind the scenes that for hundreds, thousands of accounts every single month, we, we knew that they had budget for the tool because they were using it. We, we knew that they had the need and we, we actually knew about the timing. And really the only job left for sales to do was to find the person with the authority and, and get them with a pretty compelling message. And even better, I wouldn't say we didn't get too good at it, Jesus, but like the message could be really, really personalized because we, we knew what tool they were using. We didn't even have to guess. So that was pretty, again, very unique to that space. But I think the, the underlying story for that one is find your unique data point that will help you sell and market to these people better. And everybody has their own one. I've been trying to recreate this at CultureAmp. I don't know what it is. I think there's something in Glassdoor reviews. How can we use Glassdoor reviews in terms of tailoring that message? It's a it's a strong signal for us, but we haven't really had time to, to look into that. We can talk hours about this, but that was really unique. And, and it was many, many years ago. And it was interesting because we knew the tool, but we also knew if you didn't have a tool and you were posting manually, how many posts you were doing. So we're using that data to say, hey, what are you doing? You're posting manually from the native platform. Mm -hmm. You're wasting your time. Um, I recall those things. So I think back in the days, I remember, and it was pretty scrappy. It was literally putting those things in Excel, I believe, and we were, we were even automating it, right? It was, time. yeah, it was pretty scrappy. It was a one-month manual process that we did, but that's how it is with these growth ideas. You've got to try to prove it out, prove ROI, make sure it works, and then move it into something that's a continuous program. And funnily enough, like many of these things, when success started showing, that the API changed. And we couldn't get that information yeah. anymore. And <laughs> there was Pete, there was a thread somewhere on the developer forums of somebody complaining about it. And we saw one developer and I looked him up on LinkedIn. It was a competitor <laughs> doing the same thing. And it was us. So there was only a couple of us doing it. But, but that's the other message. It's like, don't get too hooked on these growth ideas and these growth hacks because if you become too dependent, they don't always last. People clue onto them. Know, they talk. You've got to have other ones and you've got to have that repeatable engine of, of ideas coming through the funnel or your innovation funnel, if you will. It's really funny too. I think like, I think so differently today, hearing that story and then some of the other stories we've heard recording this podcast about this idea, if you were really out there thinking about starting a company today, being able to map and find that ideal fit for the problem even prior to starting, like finding this sort of unique well to tap early on, at least to like get the the growth engine up and running just seems like such a good strategic move. Like you, you talk to so many or hear so many success stories like that at Falcon where it's like, you know, they, they were able to like market map. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, like actually just market mapping with the, the data that's out there and then either operationalizing that through a sales team or, or some form of marketing, whether that's like just doing some sort of lookalike or retargeting offer. But is it something like going into roles now, Ben, you think about like before you go in, like is, this, is there like a well I can tap here or is it just something that once you get in, you just start throwing and kicking ideas around and seeing what sticks? I think it's, it's the throwing and kicking around. I think there's only so much thought you can put into the pain points a company is trying to solve for before you join. It takes time. Like those ideas, 
you sort of sit there in your first few months in a role where you you don't know the persona or the buyer, you don't know the company or the product that well. And and it's just through those natural conversations that happen between colleagues that these ideas spin up. And it's, you know, it really only happens later on in your career, I find. Not in your career, but in your time at a company. You just don't understand it that well. So no, I'm not really thinking about it, but I don't move jobs that often. So I, I can't really comment too much on that. Yeah, that's right. I, I learned over the years that all it takes is talking to customers and to salespeople to get those ideas. I do that a, a lot. I talk, I see with sales constantly or talk to users constantly because the ideas come from, from there versus you thinking about something. Yeah, I like that idea of just like the lead-in problem solving where you're thinking, okay, these people are already posting like there's a clear problem and need for this software. And then the the like in-context outreach is is so critical. Ben, I know you've done a lot now, like going into Culture Amp, like, and you've probably had lessons that you've dragged with you for that. And, and you talked us through this idea of lead scoring, like you've got like high throughput in this business and you needed a way to sort of dissect that, uh, those signals coming in. Mm. Can you... Take us through like, you know, from the past and then to the present, like what, what you've been learning and, and what, what you're doing now. Yeah, I'll take you back to the beginning. I think Culture App, we've got thousands of customers. Hopefully most people listening to this know of us, but we, we started off as an employee engagement software. That means surveys of internal staff to act on internal feedback. And as we've gotten bigger and bigger, we've, we've made new products, new modules and, and all of those things. And, and what that means is that People are coming to our website for different problems. And if I go back to three years ago when I was in marketing operations at CultureAmp, we had a pretty standard lead scoring process and it didn't need to be multifaceted. It didn't need to think about multiple personas or multiple problems and, and have all these elements to it and sophistication. And it was easy to sort of run. It was this person seems interested. Let's make sure that we're having a conversation with them or this account seems interested. Let's make sure we're having those conversations. But as we've got bigger, we're, we're, I think... I always compare it to Salesforce. So if anybody's bought or bought from Salesforce in the past, they have so many different products that you just can't know that product inside out. And they've got so many people who they're bringing onto calls to specialize in that product. And that's the same thing with Coltrane. We're now an employee experience platform. We might help you with performance management. We might help you with development plans for your employees. We might help you in terms of your, your DEI initiatives. We can do a lot of different things. And underneath that, in order to track and market and sell all of the brands and these companies and these contacts who are engaging with our brand, we need to measure accurately their interest in each of these products. So what that meant, we had to sort of innovate and solve and think about how we could do multi-product lead scoring in that sense. And we haven't mastered this. There's still a long way to go on this. But the way we think about it is that people and brands just interact with us in different ways. And it's on different parts of our websites, online, offline. And, and all of those interactions typically can be a generic brand interaction, but usually or not, they're, they're focused on a, a topic or a theme. And that topic or theme can roll up to one of our solutions. And really, it's about being very clever and strategic about how you aggregate and roll up those interests, those actions that an unknown user on your website can do, a group of contacts who are known can do, and, and try to see is there a a summary or a, a, a collective set of actions that shows that this person or this account is showing interest in this product line. So the challenge in terms of what we were trying to solve for was we have thousands of people using our engagement software. We now have all these different suites of products. How do we find those who are engaging with, with content and assets on our website that align to our other product suites that they might not have bought yet? 
So what we built was it's called a performance score. And that's not like as in company performance, it's actually about our product line performance. So what interest does somebody have within in our performance suite? And so all of a sudden for our account managers who are managing our, our book of business, they have a, a list of contacts who, who they can really see and, and stack rank, who's showing the most interest in our performance product line. We're not yet talking to us about performance or who, who, who haven't even bought performance yet. And that means that we're just talking to the ones who are really feeling that pain and obviously showing interest in, in assets that lead to purchasing our, our performance product. And it's been really valuable. And I'm really excited to try to scale it because we keep adding product suites. What are you looking at, like in terms of just like them spending time on on pages? I know you talked about like content downloads and things like that, but what could you explain to people listening? Like what kind of signals do you look for to show yeah. proper intent? And have you learned any things that appeared to be signals, but then they're just, you know, absolute rubbish? Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, what we're looking at, I think, um, and this sort of talks to, you know, legacy marketing automation tools, they, they sort of fall apart with this level of complexity. We've really had to, to hack it or not hack it. We've had to look to, to use analytic software to bring it all together and external other tools outside of your traditional marketing automation tools. But what we're looking at is, is visits to blog pages, visits to webinar, attendance of webinars, going to trade shows if they're around a certain topic. It's all connected to our CMS, which is a custom-built CMS where we have every single page on our website, we have a theme associated to it. So we, we really know it quite, quite in depth. So yeah, we're, we're aggregating that. So what it looks like is the data sources in my mind is on our website, tracking with a tool called Segment, which most people know about. We use Uberflip, which is a CMS, which most people should know about once you sort of outgrow the marketing automation tools, Salesforce campaign data, and then and form submissions within the marketing automation tool. And really when you boil it all down, all those things, whether it be going into a campaign, downloading it, filling in a form, chatting with the chatbot, looking at a page or loading up an ebook, they're all just events, person A doing this thing on this date. And as long as you have that additional bit of metadata around what's the topic, you can start aggregating and rolling that up onto a person in terms of their product interest. So yeah, that's that's what we're looking for. And that's how we aggregate Are you, are you also breaking that down into key like buying persona roles? Because I'd imagine you have a lot of users that are sort of the end user versus the people that are operating the software, right? So is there a big problem there identifying the right people or is it just obvious based on the kind of content they interact with? We haven't overlaid it yet, but it is it is something we want to do. You know, we know little bits and pieces. If Certainly if they're existing customers, we know whether they're already a user of our product. They might be somebody completely new, but obviously the job title is a big thing. We think about it a little bit, but at the moment we're really just trying to track their behavior and and the actual information about that person is is not so important in this process, but as we get more into it, I think it, it certainly will be uncovered to be pretty important. And then in terms of the things that we think that are showing up that are not that important, I mean, it's tricky. It's it's really hard. It's messy when you go to this, this information. You know, I think one thing is even in the early days and it's still happening now, it's if you just leave one of our blog posts open up on your browser and you open it up and reload, you know, if you have the great suspender or that Chrome extension that suspends tabs, because you're trying to save power. Like I was looking at one user the other day who's got a score of whatever, 500, and it's just the same blog post. And it's messy because it's like, if they're looking at the same blog post 30 days, 30 times in 30 days, that's not that interesting. And you have to really cleanse the data and normalize it and say, well, you can only count it once and 
very soon we're just building our own piece of software. Uh, and I really look, when that starts to happen, you get that little complexity. I just try to look to the, the external market of, is there somebody else working on this? And I haven't been able to find it. So we're going to keep plugging away at it with our internal build, I think, for now. You know, most of the um, cool brands out here, they actually build their own one. I talked to many in the Bay Area. They actually do their, their own work. Ben, how, how do you automate content categorization? That's crazy to me. I remember doing trying to do this back in the days through Marketo, and we did, we did something crazy with the URLs, but we added a, an ending to the URL that didn't compromise the URL, and it was like a hash something. Um, yeah. But the input to the hash was actually manual. Someone had to go sit down there and categorize the pages. And then they will display it automatically. But have you solved that one? Yeah. So it's uh, we're going to get pretty in the weeds here, but it depends on the source, right? And I think the one thing was with the CMS, you know, very, very lucky to have a, an incredible web team at Coltramp who built a, an amazing CMS. But you can't create a page with Coltramp without a, a theme on that page. So and segment. JavaScript is able to pick up the theme of the page and do that. So that's that's great. That's solved on the website. And then you enter marketing automation land. Well, therefore, it's it's down to creating a process around the form. You know, how do you put naming conventions and metadata on the form that tracks this and does it well? Uh, I'm a big. I would I would say my alternative title at Voltramp is like uh, manager of naming conventions, um, just to make sure that we can can do this. And manage it all and then on the on the salesforce side yeah we lock it down pretty tight naming conventions and metadata on campaigns people we push people down some pretty 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 controlled environments so that the data is entered into the system in the way that functions because it's got to go through the right way and the really nice thing is we don't capture everything like we just know that and we just need to have processes in place that are, if you think about people on your website these are all just events we have millions of brand interactions millions and millions and millions and we've got to just try to categorize them as best as we can and, and if something can't get classified and we see that there's this event that is our 12th most popular event but it's not classified something's gone wrong let's go fix it and let's go reclassify to make sure it's there so it's, it's a little bit of controls in place but then also constant auditing and making sure that you you fix it because really if if it is a really popular event we kind of want to know about it and we want to be able to utilize it and push it into third-party applications and take advantage of it. Are you so, auditing on a regular basis, like this stuff? Or is it just uh, like sales hoc. going, hey, Ben? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty ad hoc. And it, it's, I think it's, you know, this type of, it's pretty advanced, I think. And, and I've moved a little bit on from the marketing operations team. And I think it's, it's something that I was really evangelized in my position because I'm an analytics-driven ops professional, like I've run BI teams before. And I think you've got to have a pretty, pretty, unique type of marketing leader who has that that mindset both analytically and operationally to do that all and keep it going so yeah i think the auditing has dropped off a little bit but in my mind like one of our okrs at coltramp this year we've been launching multiple products and focusing on modules it's the only way this is going to scale and in my mind once you once you become a sales force where you have sales cloud marketing cloud service cloud partner cloud like how else are you meant to email and market to people and sell to people who, who are coming to your website, but you actually have to delineate your interests in the different lines. And I think that's the really powerful thing with unknown users. And I think that's the biggest thing to tap into, right? With using this data more for that, more, like let's forget about lead scoring, but you've got hundreds of thousands and millions of people to your website who you don't know who they are. 
but you at least are able to easily aggregate what they did in that session when they came, you can actually have a more compelling offer when you retarget them or try to get them back into your funnel. Because you know that their three out of their four actions was around this product line or this topic or this theme. Let's make sure that whatever we come back to them with, we don't know who they are, but let's try to give them something relevant to what they did. I was going to ask you, so how are you using the data? Now you're collecting all the data through, I believe, known users and anonymous IPs. What do you do with the data? Like, I'm hearing you, you pass it to the marketing team to do retargeting, but... What well, we don't do that use case yet. I really want to. I think like it's a, like for me, it's it's the secondary, it's the most powerful lever to use this information. We've gone to all that effort to have all of our pages tagged. And that's a That's a huge opportunity. But for the known users, what we're doing is we're, I mean, where modern data stack is the term that's thrown around a lot. There's a lot of companies building around that, you know, DBT, Snowflake, all those companies who are in the middle of it, but we're, we're passing all this information into our warehouse, modeling it with DBT, and then using a emerging trend called reverse ETL, uh, companies like Census or High Touch to pass it back into the operational tools. That's that's really how we're doing it. And it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's pretty unique and novel and it wasn't something that was so easy. I go back to the Falcon example at the beginning, you know, when monthly manually I'm saying these are the accounts we should go after. I think something like that is a lot easier in an environment like that with the emergence of something like a reverse ETL tool. How does all this data then feed in? Obviously the biggest benefit outside of like the retargeting, like contextual retargeting opportunity is feeding that data, like you said earlier, into sales. And I know that in and of itself is a big challenge as well, because these systems aren't necessarily designed to just like present this kind of data to sales in a digestible way. Like, how does that work? How did you take that on? Yeah, I always try to put myself in the shoes of, of a sales development rep every now and then in terms of getting handed a lead. And I think that's a really tricky thing. Hand raises are obvious, right? Like they wanted something, they've raised their hand, this is it. But oftentimes it's, it's a multiple different actions that somebody's done to end up in the hands of sales and how do you make that really, really, really crystal clear. And so you want to make it as binary as possible with data so that, you know, you can perhaps trigger actions and have outreach be automated and do that. But sometimes when it's, it's not that clear, you want to leave room for creativity. So it goes back to that multi-product lead scoring. It's like you, you're looking at an account, you're looking at a contact and there's this person, they've done 20 different things, you know, in a usually for a lot less depending on the person, but then you actually can show, is there interest in this product line? Is there interest in that product line and the other one? And so you just more or less have varying degrees of interest in each product lines and you're counting their actions more or less in each product line. So when that person is looked at by anybody who wants to try to speak to this person, they know that they've shown zero interest in that product line, but they've shown a lot. Is that outreach automated from that assigned uh, SDR or BDR rep, or is it just, hey, here's a... Here's a lead, go talk to them. It depends. I think like if, if somebody's watching a, a product demo of the engagement platform, it's pretty clear what they're interested in. Like that's a bottom of the funnel. I'm looking at a demo video of this product. We can automate that. We know that that is like, hey, let's follow up about this specific interest. But if it's, hey, here's this person who looked at this ebook, but also went to this webinar and then also did this other thing, what are, how, what are, how are you going to automate that, right? It's too many unique combinations of, of middle funnel activity that can't truly be automated. You could do something very generic, but I'd actually much rather put it in the hands of, of a very capable sales rep to, to take it from there rather than try to automate everything. 
Do you remember what the world looked like before this was in place? Like before you had that like scoring around like the theming of of products. Was there a time when you had the multiple product lines? This wasn't in place, and then because I, I think it's so interesting, like it, to for people out there to hear like just this much like I don't want to say complexity, but just thought goes into like how you're approaching prospects and and how you're thinking through the data and the theming of data and. You know, I think to a lot of people, it would be quite shocking that that you're doing a lot of these things. I think we all take it for granted, but it's so it's very few people doing it. So do 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 you have this way of looking at it from like a almost before and after, where before like the sales conversations weren't as consistent, or the clo- you know the close rates increasing as as a result of doing it? Like, yeah, I mean, I I think the before is I was I was looking at culture. We're very lucky we have a strong brand, but I was looking at a lot of people coming in and going down a funnel and taking actions. And then the first message and interaction they had with our sales team was something okay, but it was pretty independent and irrelevant to the actions they had done. So you sort of look at the message being sent. In my mind, we're creating friction in the buying process because they've already kind of told us half the things by the journey they've taken. And we're asking them similar questions. We already know what product they're interested in. They've already told us a couple of things. So why do we need to send this message? So yeah, we definitely see lift in conversion rates because there is more context. We are like asking the right questions. We know what they've done. So I'm not going to say random numbers on out here, but we can see the lift that it's, it's had on us. But I think anybody can do this. I think I, I go to like, everybody makes fun of how SaaS companies' websites all look the same. Uh, I have autos up in front of me. You know, they all have a solutions tab, right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they all do. And then maybe a features tab. And really, that's the context that you can pass. Like, often the journey is not coming straight away and saying, contact sales or try for free. They actually check out that solutions page to be like, ah, that's the problem I need solved. And if they're on that page and then go talk to sales, well, that's like a little breadcrumb of like, we need to send our first message and follow up around these type of items because this is the problem that they're having. And that's a very simple, light version of this. But I guarantee you, nine out of 10 software companies, that all goes to the same form, the same page when you finally go to hit sales and they don't bring in that context of where they're coming from. Yeah, that's a definitely. bit more tricky if they've gone shopping and done everything. Like that's where you go, well, I don't know what they're interested in. But if they've just gone to one solutions page or they've had the keyword, right? They've searched on Google for one particular keyword and pain. Like you really need to pass that information through to sales in, a, in an objective binary way that ideally sends the message automatically or makes it pretty pretty clear to anybody picking up that conversation from there. Like, why is that person here? So do you guys have a free trial or look at like product usage data in that mix as well? Or is it always it for this particular, these products, like sales driven in the sense of like, you're feeding those buying signals or those contextual pieces to sales and then they're handling that process. Like, are you looking at data sort of after the fact of what they're doing in the product, which might indicate they're interested in another product? We want to, yeah. There's some really interesting things that can be done there. I, I can't go too far into it, but like there's there's things, and I mean, I'll go into an example. There's There's questions that people can ask in their surveys to their workforce that imply that they might need our other products. Like if, if they're asking their workforce about, you know, what did you think of the last performance management cycle and people are not too impressed, then that's a clear pain point that they needed. So there's a little bit, but it's actually quite hard to, to mine that. And we have 
huge restrictions on what we have access to. Like that's completely under lock and key at Coptram. So it's a little bit limited in terms of what we can do. Like, but in terms of product led, we don't have anything. We'd like to get there, I'm sure, soon, like everybody else, but it takes a little bit of time to to get there. But all with all the analytics stack and everything that we spoke about, I think any sort of PQL or product led MQLs or whatever you want to call it will be a piece of cake given that all this infrastructure is in place for, for this stuff anyway. It's funny, but going back into the sales motion, I um I couldn't agree more with you, Ben. I think contact is everything. There's really good salespeople out there, and I get like literally 20 emails a day, no kidding, and I delete them all. And the only ones that I read is the one that have some sort of relevancy with me or what I've done, or literally. And I remember like you saying at um, at Unity, which I spent a few years trying to master some of this stuff, we had an automation for, it wasn't sales, it was access as a success advisor. And we will tell them like it was automated and it will come from a person and will say, you know, is this email is automated, but guess what? I wrote it. So the, the person will say, I wrote the email, it's coming from a machine. And we identify that you've done this thing before, you might be interested in reading this as a next thing. And you know those emails that we highlighted that it was automated, but someone, a human wrote it, but the machine triggered it, had the highest engagement of all of them. It was incredible. People will reply to those emails saying, oh, that's so nice that you actually, because people get the emails and people know they're automated. I get those emails outreach sequences and one after the other, no reply. And I'm like, hello, there's someone out there. So I agree the relevancy of make something that is relevant to the user, whether it's adding value or telling them that this might be interesting because they've done something. Yeah, don't make them rehash the past or, you know, ideally you already have a little bit of information about them and that's just a breadcrumb to, to tailor your outreach. You know, I think your chances of replying will be better if you have just inbounded, you now have their LinkedIn, you now have their title, you know what pages they were looking at beforehand and that's that's really the key and those micro conversions at the volume that, Coltramp is at really have a huge impact. I think exactly. You know, do you measure how do you measure the success? Do you measure that reply rate, higher reply rate, or um, in the outreach? Yeah. How do you measure that? I want to. We just simply don't have at my in the operations team. We don't have the time right now to go into reply rates. We're getting we're staffing up. We're getting there. We're going to have that focus soon. So a lot of trust in my my sales development team and product marketing to go into that. But I think they could use some help. I just really focus on you know, our MQL to op conversion rate. That's the one I'm obsessed and focused about. This is how many we've passed over. This is how many we turn into opportunities. You know, I'm I'm doing all sorts of things right now to improve response time down to minutes because I like I've I've run the numbers of the millions of dollars of pipeline that these minutes will impact. So yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm really focused on. Yeah. At the end on your I have a plug at the end for your email problems. My old manager will be upset if I if I don't mention his new company, but I'll <laughs> I'll let you, uh, I'll tell it at the end. Yeah, it is funny. I think there's that distinguishment between like, for us, definitely like the content themes are maybe less relevant and that that product data it becomes like the sort of narrative to tell for certain, yeah. like you can ascertain a lot from, you know, if someone connects Salesforce but doesn't have any custom objects, well, it's probably a really basic Salesforce implementation. But then if they connect several custom objects and like link them up well you know that it's you know a lot more complex and then there's going to be like different demands on it so it's really interesting i think for yeah like it's interesting how similar it is and i think like you said earlier like 
translating that over from like a sales-led model to a product-led is really no different. It's just getting that context about the buyer. And the difference between personalizing those emails is just insane from what I've seen, especially if you can get that granular where it's like, for example, right now, if someone connects, like say that Salesforce case, you can see like the small startup versus the more sophisticated like insurance or bank, you know, and that difference in schema. So it's quite interesting, but like that's kind of like as you get further and, and deeper down, if you were advising like a startup or someone that's just starting out listening and they're hearing these ideas going, holy shit, I didn't know I'd have to put that much work into like theming and, and tracking on my website. Like what are the elements you would suggest out of this to just get in place? Like if there was just like one or two things. I don't operate well at a early stage series A company. I've always been sort of a little bit later. So I, I wouldn't take my advice too seriously here, but I honestly would say, don't think about this. This is, These are big company problems. I think from that standpoint, like just get your foundations in place. You're going to have a couple of four, like, so from my standpoint, have it. Yeah. I, I just wouldn't bother about it. I would be focusing on different things, which is perhaps what we spoke about at the beginning of this, which is find those, hit those moments where people have those pain points, which is back to scraping Facebook API. How do you find those accounts who really have your pain point? And then you you have no brand out there. You've got to focus on reaching those people and it's all up to you. And I, I don't think you need to worry about all these themes. So yeah, that wasn't a great answer. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> no, I think it's good. I mean, we heard like recently on, on a previous recording about... I forget who we were talking with, Jesus, but... It was around pricing. It was like, you know, people obsess over SaaS pricing, like packaging and pricing really early on. And we were just like, don't bother. Who cares? It's just like, you'll never get it right. Like, don't just don't worry about it <laughs> until you're at a certain scale where it matters. And so whenever, I mean, at least for me, whenever I'm working with somebody small and we are culture amp size, they'll do anything with price to work with culture amp. And so you just accept and own that you're going to have a great deal of grandfathered pricing because you're just experimenting. So yeah, I think you're spot on. I wouldn't think about pricing and packaging too much and just still trying to prove value for your product with big companies like us. And I think that's a really important signal and you'll figure out pricing later. I agree with Ben. Like uh, if you start up or you're in early stages, do things in a simpler way. You don't have to automate the whole thing and read the whole thing. Start with really super simple stuff, like who visits your pricing page and then go after them. Who has the right profile and then go after them. You can do a lot of things in a manual way, in a simple way that can add tremendous value to a really small sales team or a really small marketing team. Or your, if you're self-serve into your self-serve marketing I, team. I mean, yeah. I do have one example that blew my mind recently and I didn't reply to this email, which is bad, but I had somebody at Loom, uh, video recording Loom, and it was like, Culture Amp has 350 employees using Loom. <laughs> and you're the most act- one of the most active. You recorded 68 and viewed 45 of your colleagues' Looms. And then collectively, they sent this many. And it's like, wow, that's actually kind of hard because they're doing very mass aggregation of our domain and knowing who's using Loom and how many people. And that hits my inbox. And it's like, oh, like, yeah, we are using Loom a lot. Like that, I think would be working so well for them. And I should have replied, but I sent it to the, the census team saying, I know that they were helping do it because it's really hard to do that stuff. <laughs> but it's really, really, that's, that got my attention. 
and it made it pretty pretty clear and it is hard to do but it, i guarantee you that's working for them yeah usage-based emails it's not it's like if you want a top performing email to send to someone aggregated usage will outperform anything on earth from what i've seen across our customer base like anything with like usage-based data people are obsessed with it doesn't even have to be that good like i think mid-trial we do like how many emails and journeys and stuff you've created and i'm yeah. telling you people love that email like that it's i don't i still don't even know why but yeah. i mean it's just proving the value right and it's and if i mean that message to a chief security officer or a cio who's like uh oh we just sent out all these videos with this customer data and we don't it's not behind single sign on like that's that's a really pretty pretty compelling message yeah, you know who, so. who does that really well at a consumer level too? Grammarly. They send this summary of your usage of Grammarly, and it's pretty unbelievable to tell yeah, you. You're bad top, at spelling you are. <laughs> yeah, you just exactly, it really much like how many mistakes you did, you're in the top X percentage, whatever. I think even um, direct to consumer or user based companies can leverage that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's even, I mean, again, I think another company, of course, like Gong Labs are doing it really well. And I think using your own data, we try to do that at Culture Amp. Like, how can we, we have so much data on the current workforce in whatever environment. How can we have our finger on the pulse and create content out of that? It's a very different use case, but, you know, Gong came out this week with their, their information on sales cycles and people saying economy on calls, lengthen sales cycle by 15%. Like that's remarkable to actually be able to come out with that very quickly, timely, and, I, and I'm sure is going to help work for them. Yeah, I think that they're one of the best like content marketing teams I've ever seen. They just, their content is, lit. I, I don't know if it's just because they're targeting me well, but it just seems like it's everywhere. And like, I see people sharing it all the time. The advocacy is, yeah, it's pretty off the charts with, with them. Yeah, I had a good conversation about, uh, I, have a, I have somebody who's, custom built a Chrome extension for their company to help with advocacy. They just push LinkedIn threads into this Chrome extension and force their teams to just go in and comment and like, well. um, yeah, 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 it's, it's really impressive and it's not multi-tenant yet, but I think when it is, it'll, it could be its own company. Yeah, for sure. I know a lot of companies do that. I think LinkedIn tried to bake some feature in like that recently, but I don't, I don't think it works where you can like publish something and it notifies everyone to comment on it. It just seems a bit weird to me like being like, hey, everyone go and spam this thing so our algorithm will pick it up. It, like them endorsing it seems weird. But I think from that point of view of a Chrome extension, it's pretty nice. I think to your point earlier though, like a lot of these things seem to go through cycles. Like you can do it for a while and eventually it just like It'll dies break. off. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not going to work. And I think even just recent weeks from marketing leaders who I sometimes listen to other podcasts with like changes to their the algorithm and they're, they're not seeing the impressions they used to. And, you know, what's his face who really taken over my LinkedIn uh, at Refine Labs. What's his name? But, you know, I heard him complaining that he's not getting as many Chris. views. Yeah, yeah, he's not getting as many views as he wanted and he's now moving to TikTok or trying it out. I think Gary, the, the sales guru, I think he was blocked by LinkedIn because he was like by far the number one viewed in LinkedIn. And he was taking over the whole algorithm and they had to change the algorithm for him because he was taking over. And he actually spoke openly about that. It's like LinkedIn didn't like me, has to change the algorithm to, to put me down so people don't keep, so I don't keep feeding the algorithm back and people keep seeing me everywhere. 
Um, Ben, what's what's your plug? Let's uh, we're oh, coming up against the plug. clock. Let's uh, let's do the plug. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Gated.com. He was my old manager, Andy Mowat. And Jesus, if you've got a lot of spam emails that you don't want to to see, it will just sit inside your Gmail. And if it's an not a um, a domain that's been accepted into your inbox, it will just get routed away and you'll never see it and they'll be sent a challenge email and asked to donate to a charity. Of your I choice. love this. I've got, the, like, this is literally, someone shared this with me. I really want to do it. I love the donation thing. Yeah, and so um, what it means is I get time back and I can raise the money for a charity of my choice and the emails I do get when people donate are actually thought through and tailored. So it's pretty amazing. It's It's like, it's a free version of Superhuman if you don't want to pay 30 bucks uh, and you can do it for a good cause. So I think Jesus needs to, to give it a shot and a shout out to, a shot. to the Gated team. But I they wonder might. how much you can raise. I want to track this. Like in a couple of months, we should check back in and see how much money. Let's do a competition. Yeah, you, there is a leader. I mean, they have the board and somebody got a $100 donation the other day. So it's pretty, pretty crazy. That's pretty cool. I like, I really like neat ideas like that. I must admit, I, I God, I like report that many as spam every day. Uh, this would be a much better avenue. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it went down for a couple of days. They're just a small startup. And like, you know, you've got product market fit if your service goes down and people are yelling and screaming. And that was exactly it. I like, I lost minutes of my day or hours of my day just with this spam email that I'm I think it also ties perfectly back into how this conversation started today, which is like having like these contextual and personalized emails based on what people are actually doing and all this accumulated data. It's just the expectation for us to open an email right now. So I think that's my big takeaway from now, like, or or today is like, I mean, people are so desperate for context in communication. They're actually signing up to Gator, which is kind of a positive out of the whole thing, but it, it definitely... I think sums up the discussion today and 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 the work you're doing, Ben. Yeah. No, it's a it's it it all fits in in that regard. I agree. Be relevant, and you know, you're taking up somebody's time, and make sure you shoot your shot properly. <laughs> <laughs>